0: Welcome to journeywithjesus.net, a weekly webzine for the global church. I'm Daniel B. Clendenin. My essay this week is called Party Time, The Wedding at Cana. It's based upon the lectionary readings for Sunday, January 17, 2010. Last month, my wife's aunt and uncle celebrated their 50th wedding anniversary. We were privileged to help celebrate their original celebration of 1959. Family members gathered in the tiny chapel where Dick and Barb were married and listened to a tape of the ceremony. After dinner and a concert, we gathered in a cabin to share stories, joke about courtship, clarify a few original details, and shed a tear or two over powerful memories of life together across 50 years. Weddings and feasts loom large in the Bible as metaphors for God's kingdom. In this week's Old Testament reading, Isaiah compares Israel's future joy to a wedding celebration. We read in Isaiah 62.5, As a young man marries a maiden, so will your sons marry you. As a bridegroom rejoices over his bride, so will your God rejoice over you. And the psalmist for this week describes a feast of abundance for both man and beast, both high and low. Jesus compares God's kingdom to a king who prepared a wedding banquet for his son, only to have people make feeble excuses about why they couldn't attend. The parable of the ten bridesmaids urges us to remain vigilant, just like we do at life-changing events like a wedding. Life in God's kingdom mirrors wedding etiquette. We read in Luke 14.8, When someone invites you to a wedding, don't take the place of honor, for a person more distinguished than you might have been invited. And in Revelation chapter 19, John imagined a great wedding feast when he conjured the consummation of all human history. John says that Jesus did many miraculous signs in the presence of his disciples. The very first sign was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, about nine miles northwest of his hometown in Nazareth. To the embarrassment of the host, The wedding wine ran dry. With his mother Mary and his disciples present, Jesus filled six stone pots used by Jews for ritual washings with water, for they had been emptied, and then turned the water into wine. The miracle bespeaks both quantity and quality. Each pot held 20 to 30 gallons. So the result was some 150 gallons of wine, far beyond what the partiers needed. There's an inverse ratio between the rather trivial problem of running out of wine at a wedding and the bizarre abundance of the solution. And furthermore, whereas most hosts serve the best wine first when people will appreciate the quality, and cheaper wine later when no one can taste the difference because they've had so much to drink. Jesus reversed the pattern, saving the best for last. And so the God that Jesus revealed is a God of lavish liberality, generosity, and extravagance. He calls us from emptiness to excess, from the least to the best. Celebrating God's extravagant excess is a prominent theme in the scriptures. Back in Deuteronomy chapter 14 verses 22 to 26, the Hebrews are commanded to tithe of their agricultural produce by eating it in the presence of the Lord at a precise time and place. But what if someone was too far away for this to be practical but still wanted to remain faithful to the command. We read in the text, Then you shall exchange your produce for money, and bind the money in your hand, and spend the money for whatever your heart desires. And there you shall eat in the presence of the Lord your God and rejoice, you and your household. In other words, in this Deuteronomy text, to fulfill God's commandment to tithe, Throw a party. In the parable of the workers in the vineyard, a foreman hired laborers early in the morning, then successively throughout the day at the third, sixth, ninth, and eleventh hours. A twelve-hour day of manual labor with the burden of the work in the heat of the day is a long day. And then that evening the foreman settled accounts, paying those who had worked a meager one hour the same as those who had worked twelve hours. Then there's the story of Mary in John chapter 12. At a dinner to honor Jesus, Martha busied herself with the details of the banquet. But Mary worshipped Jesus with an extravagantly expensive gesture. She poured a pint of perfume on Jesus' feet, then wiped his feet with her hair. The text says that the perfume was worth a year's wages, and the reaction of the disciples was predictable. What is going on here? We should have sold that perfume and given the money to the poor. And I wonder what my Christian friends would think if I wasted an entire year's salary on a single act of worshipful celebration. Nehemiah recounts the humiliating defeat of Judah by pagan Babylon, the survival of a demoralized remnant, then their improbable efforts to rebuild the ruins of Jerusalem years later under the Persian king Artaxerxes. When Nehemiah heard the story of his people's great distress and reproach, he wept, mourned, fasted, and prayed for days on end. He also rebuilt the fallen walls of Jerusalem. Once rebuilt, the people gathered in the public square to hear Ezra read the law of Moses. Overcome with bittersweet emotions, the people wept. Then Nehemiah said to all the people, This day is holy to the Lord. Do not mourn or weep. For all the people were weeping when they heard the words of the law. Then he said to them, Go, eat the fat, drink the wine, and send portions to him who has nothing prepared. For this day is holy to our Lord. Do not be grieved, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. And that's what they did. The people went away to eat to drink, and to celebrate a great festival. Yes, there was a proper time to grieve the devastation of Jerusalem. But there also came a time to move forward and to rejoice, however modest the remnant circumstances compared with former times and former expectations. There was a time back then, and there's a time today, in the words of Nehemiah chapter 8, to eat the fat and drink the sweet wine. All these biblical stories remind me of the Danish film, Babette's Feast, which won a 1988 Academy Award for the best foreign film. The story unfolds in the late 19th century in a small fishing village on the dank and dreary Jutland coast of Denmark. Two sisters have given given up their own ambitions to care for their aging father an elderly pastor of a stern and tiny church. Their band of dour Christians learn the meaning of God's extravagant grace from a most unlikely source when a French refugee named Babette invades their little tiny world. In a highly symbolic act, Babette, who was once a famous chef in Paris, cooks the villagers a sumptuous feast, at first, the villagers can't allow themselves to enjoy such extravagance. But they loosen up and learn to accept celebration, excess, and abundance. At Cana in Galilee, Jesus filled and fulfilled the ancient promises of Judaism. He filled the empty pots used for ritual purity with wine used for secular celebration. He didn't merely announce a coming reign of God or direct attention away from himself to some other. With this, the first of his many miraculous signs, he demonstrated that somehow and in some unsurpassed manner, he revealed the glory and character of God like no other. This friend of sinners accused of being a glutton and a drunkard, revealed a God of extravagant goodness and mercy. And for further reflection, you might want to watch the 1988 film, Babette's Feast. Why do some Christians find it hard to accept God's extravagant grace? Consider the gospel theme of the most grace for the least deserving. And for another gospel party, see Luke chapter 15. A ring, a robe, and a party for the prodigal son. For books this week, I review Margaret MacMillan. The title of the book, Dangerous Games, The Uses and Abuses of History, New York Modern Library, 2009, 188 pages. Margaret Macmillan is a Canadian historian, warden of St. Anthony's College at Oxford University, and the author of the award-winning book, Paris 1919. Her newest book is the result of some lectures that she gave at the University of Western Ontario in the fall of 2007. The book retains the informality of a lecture, which makes for easy reading. With the scholar's eye for careful nuance, in eight short chapters she shows how and why history is important, and the ways we use and abuse it. Her book reminded me of the proverb that good judgment comes from experience, and experience comes from bad judgment. With history, we try to make the complex past more simple, perhaps by identifying some meaning, purpose, or pattern. St. Augustine, for example, saw a divine purpose in history, Karl Marx saw the inexorable march of material forces, and Asians see only eternal cycles. Francis Fukuyama even argued that the triumph of Western liberalism marked what he called the end of history, a view which he later retracted. We use history to escape the present, to construct a nostalgic past, appeal to authority, and even to rectify the past with a demand for modern reparations. History is far too important, says Macmillan, to concede to amateurs, to political ideologues, sweeping generalizations, or oversimplified complexities. She would thus raise the bar of historical vigor. Despite our notoriously unreliable memories, we should not concede that we can't know quote, "what really happened" end quote, in the past there is she says an irreducible core to past events that we can in fact recover national myth-making about past glories and grievances is a special source of distortions suppressions and flat-out falsifications Good history, on the other hand, deconstructs bad myths. Nations as we understand them are in fact a recent development of the last 200 years. But that hasn't stopped spurious appeals to imaginary past histories. At its best, history can educate us. But even here, there are murky areas. Like what to include or omit from a museum exhibition about the Enola Gay or a school curriculum about a past war. Even public holidays like Columbus Day provoke historical controversy. Macmillan draws upon concrete examples, both current and ancient, from Afghanistan to Zimbabwe, to show how history is a proper source for humility, self-awareness, and healthy skepticism. In the end, she writes in the last sentence of her book, My only advice is to use it, but always handle history with care. Margaret Macmillan, Dangerous Games, The Uses and Abuses of History For film this week, I review Invictus. 2009, released just before Christmas. Director Clint Eastwood comes full circle in this inspirational biopic of Nelson Mandela. He spent his acting career dispensing vigilante justice and now he turns from revenge to reconciliation. Morgan Freeman, with a remarkable African lilt to his voice, portrays Mandela, who was released in 1990 after spending 27 years of hard labor in prison. As South Africa's first fully democratically elected president, serving from 1994 to 1999, Mandela faced the combustible combination of black anger and white fear. He can be elected, ran a newspaper headline, but can he govern? In addition to his personal charisma, Mandela used South Africa's all-white rugby team, the Springboks, as a sign and symbol around which to unify the nation. Matt Damon stars as Francis Pienaar, the team captain, who in a parallel challenge of leadership convinced the rugby players to take on that role in their 1995 World Rugby Cup play. And so this film blends serious political history with almost hokey sports drama. But it works. The title, Invictus, is based upon the 1875 poem of the same name, which in Latin means unconquered. It's by the English poet William Henley. It was a poem which helped Mandela endure prison, and the last line of which reads, I am the captain of my soul. Invictus, from director Clint Eastwood, starring Matt Damon and Morgan Freeman. (coughs) And finally for this week, for poetry, we've posted a poem called A Future Not Our Own. It's a poem written, in fact, by Bishop Ken Utner of Saginaw, Michigan, and it was drafted for a homily in November 1979 to celebrate departed priests, and especially the anniversary of the martyrdom of Bishop Oscar Romero. A Future Not Our Own It helps now and then to step back and take a long view. The kingdom is not only beyond our efforts, it is beyond our vision. We accomplish in our lifetime only a fraction of the magnificent enterprise that is God's work. Nothing we do is complete, which is another way of saying that the kingdom always lies beyond us. No statement says all that could be said. No prayer fully expresses our faith. No confession brings perfection. No pastoral visit brings wholeness. No program accomplishes the church's mission. No set of goals and objectives include everything. This is what we are about. We plant the seeds that one day will grow. We water the seeds already planted knowing that they hold future promise. We lay foundations that will need further development. We provide yeast that produces effects far beyond our capabilities. We cannot do everything and there is a sense of liberation in realizing this. This enables us to do something and to do it very well It may be incomplete, but it is a beginning, a step along the way, an opportunity for the Lord's grace to enter and do the rest. We may never see the end results, but that is the difference between the master builder and the worker. We are workers, not master builders, ministers, not messiahs. We are prophets of a future not our own. A prayer composed by Bishop Ken Utner of Saginaw, Michigan. Thank you for joining us at journeywithjesus.net for Sunday, January 17th, 2010. I'm Daniel B. Clendenin.